Imagine you're an elderly woman with one leg, minding your own business when a group of people busts into your shack that you call a home and accuse you of being a witch. You're stripped out of your clothes and forced to go without sleep for days. Today we have the story of the Witch Finder General on the 140th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I'm so glad you're with me today. And today we're back to murder. A lot of murder. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, you might have heard that I was going to do a UFO story. Well, I apologize to both of you because I've changed my mind. I had this UFO story in mind, but I just couldn't find enough information. Maybe there is information out there. I couldn't find it. And then I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, one called Monster Talk, starring Blake Smith and Dr. Karen Stolznow. They had a show about witches, and they mentioned a fellow named Matthew Hopkins, a witch finder. I was intrigued. And usually when I get interested in something or someone, that means I have a new Coffee with Jeff episode, and that's just what happened. But during my research, I discovered a series of YouTube videos that I really enjoyed. But I'll get to that at the end of today's show because I'm afraid you might turn this off to watch those. And I want to shout out again to Russell. He's been going through all my old episodes and sending me emails on many of them. Thanks, Russell. And to Drew in Maine. He sent me a nice email after my last show. And from the results I've seen on the Coffee with Jeff Facebook page... The Burma Shave episode seems to be one of my most popular. And quickly, I'm looking for your help. Last year at this time, I did a show about the history of three classic toys. Silly Putty, the Magic 8-Ball, and the Slinky. I'm going to do it again this year. Sort of a Christmas-type episode. So if you have any suggestions, you can use my email. You can Twitter me. You can catch me on Facebook. Any one of those and let me know. So here in Chicagoland, we actually had a dusting of snow. Just barely enough to cover the ground, but not enough to shovel. It's still cold out, and I'm glad I'm inside with a hot cup of coffee, and I get to tell you a story of a man who took it upon himself to hunt witches in 17th century England. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. With the tranquility of rural England shattered by civil war, evil was spawned at a time of strife in the land. Take him, Stern. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Right. Albert, you two. Pounding the innocent in violence and terror, this evil man showed no mercy in the pursuit and interrogation of his victims. He was called the Witch Finder General. 
I could be wrong, but it seems that if you look at humankind throughout the ages, if there's something that can't be understood, some sort of mystical or magical reasoning is created to explain it. Before the sun in the sky was understood, it was a god riding a flaming chariot. It made sense at the time. I think it's all about control. The idea that awful random things can just happen is scary, but it's a lot less scary if you have a reason, even if it's something you have to invent, like a witch. I mean, someone has to take the fall. In the early 17th century in the UK, witches were thought to be real. When they were discovered, they were sometimes executed, but mainly imprisoned. But in the 1640s, things were really going wrong for the people of England. There were crop failures, poverty, disease, economic depression, religious rivalries, and civil war. Superstition and paranoia made many blame the devil and his agents on earth for these horrors. And his agents, of course, were witches. They wanted and needed protection and thought that the church wasn't providing it for them. So they took it upon themselves. It was common for villages to create their own way to gain protection from evil, like potions or charms. But it was hard to protect yourself if you didn't even know who was a witch and who wasn't. Your kindly old neighbor could be one, but you wouldn't know. Paranoia swept the land. They needed a person, a man, to tell them who was a witch and who wasn't. These men were known as witch hunters or witch finders. And the most successful, and by successful I mean from the point of view of the man who killed the most would-be witches, was Matthew Hopkins, the self-proclaimed witch-finder general. It must have been really frightening when they rode into town and gazed in a person's direction, especially if that person was poor, elderly, and of course a woman. Now before we get into this horrible story, let's make one thing clear. This is not about misguided men thinking they were doing cruel things for the common good, although they might have thought that, but what they were really doing is making a profit. They used paranoia and fear to get people to hire them to root out evil and get confessions from those in league with the devil. And usually this fee was on a per-witch basis, meaning, of course, the more witches found, the more they got paid. And on top of that, Hopkins changed what it took to convict a person for being a witch. Before him, there needed to be a specific crime associated with the accused. But for Matthew Hopkins, just being a witch was crime enough. And once Hopkins set his eyes on a poor soul, there was little chance they were going to get away without making a confession. But how, one might ask, does a man like Matthew Hopkins get the authority to hunt witches? Well, witches had always been a problem in Europe, though it shouldn't have been a problem because, well, witches aren't real. What was the problem was that people used the idea of witches to punish the innocent for things in their life that were not going right. When crops failed, a witch must be responsible. If a child died, they thought, who do I know who might be a witch that caused this, etc., etc., the panic of witches had been brewing for quite a while. In 1484, Pope Innocent VIII denounced witchcraft as heresy. In 1542, King Henry VIII introduced a bill appropriately titled The Bill Against Conjuration in Witchcraft and Sorcery and Enchantment. 
1563, witchcraft was made a capital offense in Britain. Between then and the start of our story, there were many witch trials, all which might make for a future episode. Our story starts with the birth of Matthew Hopkins. Very little is known about Matthew Hopkins before his witch-hunting days. He was born in a village called Great Wynnum in Suffolk somewhere around 1620. He was most likely the fourth of six children. We know his father was named James, and he was a Puritan clergyman. So it wouldn't be too far of a stretch to assume he was exposed to the ideas of witches and witchcraft at an early age, and considering who his father was, its association with evil. In 1630, Hopkins was in Manningtree, Essex. His writing suggested he was trained in law. It was in Manningtree that he claimed to have heard voices outside his window, the voices of witches who held meetings right outside his house. He began to spy on them. And then, again according to Hopkins' writings, the witches sent a bear-like spirit to kill him. John Stern, who was one of Hopkins' witch-hunting buddies, would later say that witches couldn't touch Hopkins because he was the son of a godly clergyman. Dr. Malcolm Gaskell, author of the book Witchfinders, a 17th century English tragedy, said, I think he was sincere in his belief, as many were in those days, that these were the last times of man, and forces of the Antichrist and Satan were upon them, and they needed to clear the land of people they believed to be evil. Hopkins himself often quoted one passage from King James' Bible, and that was, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now, while many in Manningtree believed that there were witches in their community, there was little they could do about it. That was until somebody like Matthew Hopkins took an interest. Hopkins had been hearing rumors about a group of witches in town, and then a local trader, John Rivet, whose wife was sick and subject to violent fits, swore before a justice of the peace that his wife was cursed by two women. One was Elizabeth Clark, an 80-year-old widow with one leg who lived alone and depended on the charity of a parish to survive. The information was brought to the attention of Hopkins. He and his partner Stern began watching Clark. Now it should be noted that Clark's mother had been hanged for witchcraft years before, as well as other members of her family. They burst into the elderly woman's home and stripped her naked. They looked for marks that were evidence in Hopkins and Stern's mind of a deal with the devil, the so-called devil's marks. They were things like warts, moles, or bits of extra skin that were declared to be teats that were there to let imps suckle blood. Imps, also known as familiars or familiar spirits, were supernatural entities that were in league with Satan. They took the forms of animals like cats, dogs, and rabbits. The suckling of blood was thought to be a way of communion made with the devil. In Hopkins' writing, he answered the question of the fact that most people have little things like warts or moles. So how is this proof of a witch? He responded by saying, He judges the unusual place where he findeth the teats in or on the body being fair distance from any usual place from whence such natural marks proceed. So basically he's saying if the marks are not where they're usually found, then that's proof of a witch. And Elizabeth Clark, being an old woman, was, of course, going to have strange marks and such. 
Another method was to poke the body with a pin, and if no pain was felt, again, that was proof. Of course, there are parts on every human body, like parts of the lower back, in which people don't feel pain. These are the points that acupuncture uses. The poor elderly woman was taken from her home to a prison cell. The marks, which were probably enough evidence for Hopkins, wasn't going to be enough for the courts, so he needed a confession. Now, at this time in England, torture was illegal. Now, for Hopkins, what he was doing, he didn't consider torture. He considered it interrogation. His main technique was sleep deprivation and psychological torture. The accused wouldn't be allowed to sleep at all. If they seemed to be dozing, they were picked up and walked around. Eventually, they would bag and bag to be able to sleep, and all the while, Hopkins or his agents would yell, Confess! over and over again. And here's the thing about torture for information. It doesn't work. That's because any person, when pushed too far, will say anything or agree to anything to get pain to stop. I can almost guarantee that if you started to shove a piece of wood under my fingernail, even before it got close to pain, I'd be screaming, I'm a witch. Another method he used was, after making sure the general mood of the village was hatred and anger towards the accused witch, he would put her in the stockade to let the locals abuse her as much as they wished. Clark held out for four days without sleep while constantly being goaded into confessing, and she eventually gave in. This poor woman admitted to being a witch. She said she had been visited by the devil and told of familiars that had visited her, like Vinegar Tom, a long-legged greyhound with a head like an ox with a long tail and broad eyes, or Sack and Sugar, a creature like a black rabbit, and there were many more. But even after her confession, Hopkins wasn't done. The interrogation continued, for it was common knowledge that there were a group of witches in Manning Tree, and he wanted them all. He forced Clark to name names. The first to be named was Rebecca West, a 15-year-old girl. When Rebecca was put under interrogation, she turned in her own mother. In the end, 36 women were arrested. Another form of proof he incorporated was the water test. The accused would be bound in ropes with hands tied together, wearing nothing more than a smock, basically a very long, loose-fitting white dress, and they were put into a river. The theory goes that if you're in league with the devil, then you've rejected baptism. Therefore, the water, any water, will reject you. So if you float, then you're a witch. If you sink, you're innocent. Now, being found innocent is a good news, bad news situation. Yes, you were found not to be a witch, but you've probably drowned in the water. But to those involved, this was okay because you were cleansed and able to get into heaven. Most, however, floated, indicating that they were a witch. Of course, they were wearing loose-fitting garments that probably filled up with air, but that's a silly technicality. The accused had to be convicted in a court of law, but by the time the trial began, these victims had already given full confessions and were as good as guilty before the trial started. As for legal representation for the accused, 
that was non-existent. If the confession wasn't enough, many times friends and neighbors would come in and testify, telling strange stories of weird going-ons, like animal transformations and things like that. How is that possible? First, one must imagine just how scared these people were. Also, many of these people actually believed in witches. It's possible that they believed in what they were saying because often people interpret what they are saying with what they truly believe. Prison for the accused must have been a horrible experience. The so-called witches were kept with other criminals as well, like thieves and murderers, up to 30 or 40 people at a time. There was little space with some people chained to the walls, and they had one bucket for everybody to use as a toilet. On top of that, you had to pay to be in prison, even for your own food. Now, if you were not freed by the court and you were sent back to prison, you had no idea what would become of you. You would wait day after day, wondering if you'd be hanged, set free, or just rot in a dark, dirty jail. Of the 36 women accused, four died in prison and 19 were convicted and hanged. 15-year-old Rebecca West escaped a death sentence, but her mother didn't. I guess if there's a bright side, is that there were no witch burning in England like there were in other lands. Hanging was the main form of punishment. I don't know if hanging by a noose is any better, but just the idea of being burned alive is just... ah. It was after this that Hopkins really went on a mission to save the world from witches. With Stern, they continued this well-paying business for almost two years. They made a lot of money doing this. Sometimes they would receive letters asking them to investigate a suspected witch, but other times they would just ride into a small village and offer their services. I'm sure there was a lot of, hey, you might have a witch problem, but if you don't want me to look into it before the trouble starts, that's your business. But then when your children start dying and the rain stops falling... Don't say I didn't warn you. And the thing is, he only got paid if he found a witch. So you can bet he was going to find a witch. They also got paid for each witch they found, so I'm betting that every village somehow had multiple witches. Around 1646 or 1647, opposition to witch-finding began to take hold. What might have brought this on was the execution of a 70-year-old church minister named John Lowe. You see, Matthew Hopkins didn't just pick on women. Sometimes he changed it up a bit, you know. Anyway, Lowe was a cantankerous old man who wasn't liked very much by his congregation. They were the ones who probably pointed the finger at him and brought Hopkins to their village. It didn't take long before Hopkins had Lowe being dunked in the river doing the water test to prove Lowe was a witch. After that, he used the sleep deprivation method. Hopkins even wrote, We kept him awake several nights together, running him backwards and forwards about his cell until he was weary of life and scarce sensible of what he said or did. Soon, the elderly John Lowe confessed to everything Hopkins wanted. Lowe confessed to preaching 60 sermons after making a pact with the devil, and even the sinking of two ships after he conjured up a storm while they were out at sea. The preacher was sentenced to death and hung. 
This was too much for some people. A Reverend John Gull began to write anti-witch hunting and anti-Matthew Hopkins papers. He denounced both Hopkins and his methods. Questions started to be asked like, how could he do this legally when he had no real authority, even if he did call himself Witch Finder General? The fact was, he probably got away with it due to the First English Civil War that began in 1642. With the war, law had broken down a bit, but after the war's end in 1646, people wanted to restore proper order and authority to the country. Many began to wonder if both Hopkins and Stern, due to their methods of investigation, were not witches themselves. They were questioned about their actions. In response, Hopkins wrote a pamphlet called The Discovery of Witches and Witchcraft. In it, he answered the most popular questions that they were being asked, such as, Query 1 that he must need to be the greatest witch, sorcerer, and wizard himself, else he could not do it. In which Hopkins answers, If Satan's kingdom be divided against itself, how could it stand? I've listened to the audio version of the whole pamphlet, and it seems like a lot of double talk to me. I'll have a link to the text in the show notes for this episode. Hopkins and Stern weren't the only witch hunters of the time. There were quite a few others, but they were the most prolific. Some say that they were responsible for 50 to 60 percent of all the people killed in those years. The number of victims killed during the witch hunting years is really unknown, but some believe Matthew Hopkins was responsible for the death of up to 300 women. In the 1968 film Witchfinder General, starring Vincent Price as Matthew Hopkins, Hopkins gets axed by a man accused of being a witch named Richard Marshall after he breaks free from his chains. Soldiers enter moments later and put a bullet into Tompkins to put him out of his misery. Some people think this would have been a suitable end for Hopkins. Another myth tells of him being hung as a witch himself, but neither of these is probably true. The real Matthew Hopkins died before the end of the witch hunts shortly after his retirement, probably before his 30th birthday of tuberculosis. According to Stern, he had been sick quite a long time before his retirement. John Stern continued witch hunting after Hopkins' death, and probably even after its official end. But within a year after his partner's death, he retired. He published a book called A Confirmation and Discovery of Witchcraft. He lived until 1670 when he died at the age of 60. Uh, Does a wood sink in water? No, 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 it floats. It floats. Tower into the pole. <laughs> What also floats in water? Bread. Apples. Uh, very small rocks. Cider. A great gravy. Cherries. Mud. A churches. Churches. Lead. Lead. A duck. Exactly. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore... A witch! A witch! We shall use my larger scales. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go, while I was researching this story, 
I discovered that Matthew Hopkins' ghost still haunts various buildings in Manningtree, especially a place called Red Lion Pub. This according to a bunch of so-called ghost hunters. Can't anyone just move on to the next world after they die like they're supposed to? What a waste of time this video was. But I did find another set of videos that I really enjoyed. I came across a series of videos by a YouTube channel called Above Average. The name of the series of videos is, and pardon my language, Forgotten Assholes of History. These are hosted by an English woman named Savan Thompson. They are short little four or five minute videos that really made me laugh. I'll have a link to one of them in the show notes for this episode, and perhaps I'll put a link to it on the Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. There is a film version of the story starring Vincent Price. Did I ever mention that I met his daughter Victoria once? Anyway, it's a 1968 film called Witchfinder General. I've never seen it, but according to what I read on Wikipedia, it's not all that accurate. What a surprise. But whatever... Let's get to the ending credits. You know, we at SciCon could really use your help. We need cash. If you'd like to help us keep this great programming available, think about helping us out. You can do that at Patreon. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? On the latest episode of Moving On, Brecky, Linnea, and Nancy talk about the 1991 action film Showdown in Little Tokyo. To find out what the gang thinks of this classic movie, go to PsyCon. You can check out this and a few of our other shows at PsyCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. If you want to complain or just say hi feel free to do so. I'll answer your email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and believe me, I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And, of course, a special shout-out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with my story on repopular classic toys. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream, didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff.
A little bit before I go, while I was researching this story, I discovered that Matthew Hopkins' ghost still haunts various buildings in Manning Tree, especially a place called Red Lion Pub. This according to a bunch of so-called ghost hunters. Can't anyone just move on to the next world after they die like they're supposed to? What a waste of time this video was. But I did find another set of videos that I really enjoyed. I came across a series of videos by a YouTube channel called Above Average. The name of the series of videos is, and pardon my language, Forgotten Assholes of History. These are hosted by an English woman named Savan Thompson. They are short little four or five minute videos that really made me laugh. I'll have a link to one of them in the show notes for this episode, and perhaps I'll put a link to it on the Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. There is a film version of the story starring Vincent Price. 
Did I ever mention that I met his daughter Victoria once? Anyway, it's a 1968 film called Witchfinder General. I've never seen it, but according to what I read on Wikipedia, it's not all that accurate. What a surprise. But whatever, let's get to the ending credits. You know, we at SciCon could really use your help. We need cash. If you'd like to help us keep this great programming available, think about helping us out. You can do that at Patreon. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? On the latest episode of Moving On, Brecky, Linnea, and Nancy talk about the 1991 action film Showdown in Little Tokyo. To find out what the gang thinks of this classic movie, go to SciCon. You can check out this and a few of our other shows at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. If you want to complain or just say hi, feel free to do so. I'll answer your email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and believe me, I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with my story on three popular classic toys.